This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, so, um, so thanks for the invite back. Um, okay, so I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm a little nervous about this talk, and the, and the reason is I'm going to show you data that are really new. Um, you know, the ink hasn't dried on these, and I'm still trying to figure out how to think about them. So, I mean, I guess to some extent, um, I'm, I'm sort of doing a rehearsal through them or trying to get some, some feedback on them. Um, <clears throat> and given the theme of this session, um, before I launch into the new data, what I'm going to do is take just a couple of minutes um, to set the context. So some of you have seen this before, um, and for some of you, it'll be new. And the question we're looking at is this question of pollution in seafood. And um, I, I want to provide some context, especially for um, some of the younger people in the room that might not be familiar with this idea, but this idea of incredible optimism about industrial chemistry, right? It's not the way we think about it today, but it was the way we thought about it around um, the turn of the 20th century. And this idea that we could make... Um, modern life much more convenient, um, uh, safe, easy with sort of industrial chemistry. And um, if, you, if you think about that, the consequence is that we've made a lot of different molecules, numbers like 80,000 are thrown around, and we produce large amounts of those things, and we put them into the environment. And so we have these images of what pollution is and where it is um, that range from things like pesticides to nutrient pollution, and they're all a very kind of um, uh, important sort of part of the puzzle. But the key thing is that when you make that many compounds and you make that much of them, they end up um, in the ocean, and ultimately some of them end up in our food. This um, slide shows some data from a food basket survey. So food basket survey involves going to a supermarket and buying fish uh, or other food items that people eat and then measuring what pollutants are there. And this was done by Arnold um, Schechter and Linda Birnbaum, who's uh, now, now director of the NIHS. And they looked through this and they said, for these three major classes of pollutants, flame retardants, um, hexabromocyclododecane was present at highest concentrations in sardines. Um, organochlorine pesticides. Salmon was the most contaminated food product with 24 of 32 pesticides detected. Um, PCBs. These are dielectric or coolant fluids. We detected six of seven um, non-dioxone-like PCB congeners in salmon and canned sardines with 153 and 138 at the highest levels. So as you would expect, you make a lot of these things, you put them in the environment, and ultimately some of them end up in our food and in our bodies. And so what does that mean for food from the sea? Well, well, what it means is that we have these kinds of vague fish consumption advisories that are based on this kind of um, general understanding of the problem of pollution. Um, I think everyone here probably remembers there was a classic study published by Ronald Heides in Science in 2004 where they said that farmed salmon has higher levels of pollutants than wild salmon. And if you, if you remember, that single paper caused an almost 
overnight shift in when you go to the supermarket in the labeling of fish, in that you can't now go to the supermarket if you buy any kind of salmon product without very clear labeling of wild versus farmed. You know, so you, you go and it'll say, this, this fish is wild, and there's a perceived health benefit with the wild fish. There's another one. I found this one at Costco, and I'm sorry it's, it's fuzzy. I took it with my phone, but um, I went to Costco, and I was buying fish, and, and there's a warning on the fish. And when does the state of California warn you about anything? You know, cigarettes, alcohol, um, parking garages and carbon monoxide. You get a warning, gas. I mean, you know, it has to be pretty nasty. There's a warning, and it says... I want to read it to you because it highlights my point. Pregnant and nursing women, women who may become pregnant. That's, that's a lot of women. <laughs> and, and young children should not eat the following fish. And just says, don't eat it, right? Okay, so that's the fish consumption advisory that you get. Um, so... The problem with this is that it really lacks granularity. We don't have any way to really dig into the pollutants and say, here, which ones are problems? What, what should we worry about? How much of them should we eat? Why are they in the food? What can we do about it? And so that's really been um, what we're studying, and not us alone. A lot of people have studied this. Um, this unintended legacy of pollutants is this idea of persistence. There are these compounds, persistent organic pollutants, um, the first 12 of them were called the Dirty Dozen. And in 2001, the Stockholm Convention, ratified by many countries, I don't think the, the U.S. has ratified it yet, but many countries have ratified it, um, aims to kind of reduce these compounds. So you said, well, if we can't figure out exactly what, we, what they do, let's at least try to get rid of the ones that are really bad. Okay, but that raises kind of a fundamental scientific question, and that is, what makes a compound persistent? Because if you know that, then at, you know, at, at the outset, when you design a compound, you can design one that's not going to accumulate. Um, it's not going to end up in polar bears or in breast milk. Um, and conversely, when what compound is released, you can sort of predict where it's going to go. And the way we've done this historically is to look at the physical property of the chemical. And generally speaking, if a chemical dissolves well in fat, it's hydrophobic, it tends to bioaccumulate. And the idea is very simple, that the dissolution in fat predicts whether the compound is going to cross a cellular membrane. Okay, So back to your intro bio, a cellular membrane is a lipid bilayer. If you want to get across it, you have to be moderately soluble in fat. Okay, so that's the chemist's view. So far, so good. However, tell this to a clinician, and they'll say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Wait, not so fast. And the reason is not all lipid things, lipid-soluble things, accumulate. And, in fact, that's the reason why a lot of drugs fail. Chemotherapeutics are very hydrophobic molecules that do not get into cancer cells and um, don't kill them. And as a consequence, we do a very poor job of treating disseminated metastatic cancers. Okay, so why is that? And the reason for that is really straightforward. Diffusion isn't the only way to cross a cell membrane. It's just one way to cross a cell membrane. And the other way you get across a cell membrane, and in some cases the most important way for a, small, for a molecule like a pollutant to get into a cell, is to cross a gate, a protein gate. And these can be things like transporters. These are channels that sit in the membrane. And they can move molecules out of cells against their concentration gradients into cells, um, concentrate them at very high levels. 
So these proteins are really critical gatekeepers for determining whether a toxin um, gets into a cell. The 800-pound gorilla of pollutant sort of elimination, toxin elimination, the one that causes problems in metastatic cancer is the ABC transporter. Um, this is a protein. This is the crystal structure of the of the protein solved by one of our collaborators. And what it does is it actively pumps things out of cells against their concentration gradients, such that the concentration of the cancer drug can be 10,000 times higher in the blood than in the cancer cell. So you can effectively kill the patient before you kill the cancer. Okay? And they do that by using a little bit of energy and actually physically spitting kind of the chemotherapeutic out. And all animals have them. Fish have them. We have them. And they tend to be expressed in all the tissues of our bodies that are there to protect us from toxins. So they're in our intestines. They're in, um, they're in uh, our, our lungs and our blood-brain barrier, kidney, liver. They're in all of our sort of barrier protective tissues. And their job is to keep um, toxic things out. So why don't they get the pollutants? That, for us, was the big mystery. Why don't these things recognize and eliminate the pollutants? Because that, wouldn't that solve the whole problem, right? You just eat the fish, your transporters recognize the pollutant, and you excrete it, and it doesn't accumulate in your body, and that's that. You know, we're not worried about them anymore. Um, so we wanted to get at that problem, and, and we decided to sort of take a step back and um, ask a couple of questions. The first is, which pollutants should we really be focusing on? So we wanted to take sort of a modern-day snapshot of the pollutants that are present in fish to get a handle on which ones are likely to be most persistent and most problematic. Remember I said there are thousands of these compounds, so we really wanted to refine our list a little bit. And then the second thing we, we asked was, how do these pollutants that are in our refined list interact with things like drug transporters that are supposed to keep them out. And we wanted to do this so that we could potentially understand why they're not eliminated and then use that to either predict or design um, other, other compounds that um, aren't. Our test species was the yellowfin tuna, and we picked this organism because it's um, in yellow is its range, and it's basically globally distributed. It's one of the most, uh, it's in the top two or three species in terms of total catch, about four uh, about 4 million tons a year. Quite a bit of this is caught and consumed. Um, and it's less migratory. The key thing for us was it's a little less migratory than some of the other t- big charismatic tuna species like bluefin. So these guys tend to give us a more local snapshot of the kinds of pollutants that would be present. Um, we set up some steady, study sites all over the globe, um, in some in the Gulf of Mexico, some here in Baja, um, all, all over the globe, some that we chose precisely because they're very far away from any kind of human impact. And um, initially, to get a handle on kind of what we were looking for, we went out and picked three sites, the Northeast Pacific, the Gulf of Mexico, and the Southeast Pacific, and we collected about 10 fish from each site and um, uh, measured something like uh, 300 pollutants from each of these 10 fish to get a sense for what's there. So as you'd expect, there's a very strong sort of anthropogenic signature. The fish that come from Tonga consistently are lower in the levels of PCBs and flame retardants and pesticides than the ones we get um, from our own backyard or from uh, the Gulf of Mexico. 
Um, but one of the things that we were able to see in the data are about 34 or so compounds that showed a really strong sort of anthropogenic signature. These are ones that seem to be really kind of enriched, really sort of track. If you're in a polluted site, you have more of these. So we plucked out of that list of 300 those 34 really high-priority kind of compounds. And then we just did a really simple test in the lab to see if they bind to drug transporters. And what we did was we took a mammalian drug transporter to model what would happen when one of us eats one of these fish. And remember that I told you that the drug transporter, every time it pumps a molecule, it uses ATP and it gives off a phosphate. It breaks the ATP and it gives off an inorganic phosphate. That reaction causes a color change of a solution from orange to green, so we can just measure how many phosphate molecules a transporter is producing when it's um, interacting with a pollutant. And that tells us one of three things that we really wanted to know. It tells us, is the pollutant a substrate? That's the green circle. Is it something that the transporter can bind, recognize, and pump out? Is it something that the transporter doesn't recognize at all? So it just doesn't interact with the transporter at all. It doesn't induce any kind of confirmation change. Or does it somehow bind to the transporter and mess it up? And that's the the red square. It's an inhibitor. And our hypothesis was that almost all of these compounds would be non-interacting. The reason we had this hypothesis was we expected that since these things accumulate, the transporter just doesn't recognize them, just doesn't see them. They get in, and that's why we don't get rid of them. Okay, so... um, so we were wrong. And it, we had, it was an interesting kind of surprise. Our hypothesis wasn't, wasn't what we expected. We expected they don't interact. But for virtually every compound we tested, it actually binds to the transporter and blocks it. It actually inhibits it a little bit. And that's shown here in this rib diagram. One indicates that the transporter is fully blocked. Zero indicates it isn't blocked at all. And we looked at a transporter from yellowfin tuna and one from mouse. And for both species, um, the vast majority of the compounds block or interfere with this really critical cellular defense mechanism. Another kind of interesting vignette that came out of the data is that the pattern of inhibition for each compound is specific even among things that are really closely structurally related. And this was a bit surprising for us. So here are two compounds. Um, Endrin and its oxidation, these are pesticides, Endrin and its oxidation product, Dildrin, okay? They're just stereoisomers, right? You just put a mirror there. Um, They're stereoisomers, and yet um, if we look at how they interact with either the tuna or the mouse transporter, they have about a 20-fold difference in their binding capacity. That's a huge difference um, between two very closely related things. And what that suggested to us is that these interactions not only happen, but they're very specific. They're actually predictable and specific. So we had one more trick up our sleeve, and I'll come back to the the global survey in a minute. We had one more trick up our sleeve, which is a lot of the pollutants have bromine atoms. And bromine atoms are really useful because when you make a protein crystal, you can actually see the electrons in the, and the electrons in the bromine atom actually scatter. So you can actually see where these compounds bind. So that gave us a tool to look at atomic resolution at where these things are binding. And so we ended up with this, which um, to, to, is the first co-crystal of a drug transporter with a pollutant. And our, to our surprise, Um, the pollutants are binding right in the drug binding pocket, exactly where they would bind if they were going to get pumped out. 
but they're not being pumped. They're actually binding there and sort of interfering with the function of the transporter. This crystal, I'm sorry, the resolution here isn't great. This crystal is about um, three and a half angstrom resolution. So um, we can really see the bromine atoms interacting with um, some of the molecules there. Okay, so let's step back a bit now from the atomic stuff. So we started with about 300 persistent pollutants in yellowfin from three locations. Um, We narrowed down kind of on 39 that showed a really important anthropogenic signature. Um, We then went to sort of purified protein assays to pick up on 20 that are really important um, inhibitors in humans. And we actually did one more round of screening. I won't have time to talk about it today. But we actually tested whether this also happens if you reconstitute the transporter in a real cell, so not just in our, in our assay system. And we came up with 14 kind of high-priority compounds. Okay, so Stockholm Convention gets the dirty dozen. I get the filthy um, 14, and I also get four minutes, which rhymes. Thank you. So, the, so our compounds were the filthy 14. And... Um, And there are some characteristics of these filthy 14 that that I kind of want to share with you. First of all, they all inhibit the mouse or the mammalian model drug transporters. So these are very likely to inhibit our drug transporters. This protein is about 98% identical to human. So they're very likely to do that in us. They're present in almost every single fish we surveyed, okay? Um, With one exception, Endrin, which was not, which was not. And almost all of these are in us. So the Centers for Disease Control does a survey of the things it finds in human blood, and every single one of these filthy 14 compounds is in you and I. Okay, so that gives us a really good way now to look in a more granular kind of way at what the global distribution is of these pollutants. And so what we did was we went back to our study map, and then we started to fill out some of the other sites that we hadn't looked at to look at the global variation and the levels of these 14 compounds that are inhibitors. And this is what the map looks like. So pesticides are in blue, flame retardants are in orange, PCBs are in gray. Um, Guam... We've drawn, this, we've drawn the pie charts there, just sort of a, uh, not to scale. On the map, they're drawn to scale. Guam, um, the fish have about, point, uh, about 60 nanomolar of these 40, um, 14 pollutants. Gulf of Mexico, they have one, 1.6 micromolar. Okay? So it's about a um, 20-fold difference. So in fact, the Guam pie chart is there. You just can't see it if we draw it to scale. So you're getting much more of these filthy 14, depending on where you get your... Um, fish from. Okay, so I want to summarize now kind of what the implications of this are. And the first one is um, these compounds are not innately toxic by themselves, um, but they inhibit the very pathways that we have to keep toxic things out. And that, that was a bit of a surprise for us. And this isn't just some sort of artifactual thing. They, in fact, bind very specifically and sort of block the um, Uh, cells' ability to pump things out. And what that means is we have to look a bit past toxicity. Um, If I have sound here, I'll turn it up on my computer and put the microphone up to it. I want to show you a movie. I show this um, very often to people when they're thinking about these pollutants. People often say, you know, are these compounds toxic? And I almost feel like toxic is... is, It's not my favorite word because... um, we have to change kind of how we think about toxicity. So here's the movie. Let me see if I can get this to play. Medical officer explains, buildings treated with DDT remain effective against mosquitoes, 
provide three months. The Africans at first are not very impressed. Some are afraid that the DDT will poison them, while others suspect some sort of witchcraft. The entomologist calls for a bowl of porridge. This is sprayed with the solution in full view of the audience. Okay, so there's the DDT solution. I could not independently verify this movie. Now spoonfuls of the mixture to show but I think this okay all right so I have to sorry about that I'm sorry I ruined your dinner but um, I don't know what's happening here I broke it oh there we go okay um, the reason I showed you that is to illustrate this point that these are not innately toxic compounds by themselves. And if we, if we set our criteria as toxicity, like how much of it do you have to squirt in, in, you know, in, a, in a mouse's eye before it goes out, um, I, think, I think we're going to be missing some of the very important kind of features. And for these compounds, it's that they're really a lot like Trojan horses. Um, they're basically the chemical equivalent of a Trojan horse. They come into a cell, they basically knock down the gate that you use to keep um, toxic things out. And so um, the term that's used in the field to describe that is that they're chemosensitizers. They're essentially making us more sensitive to the kinds of toxic things we encounter in daily life. Okay, the second part of my summary is we saw something that we didn't really expect, um, and I think it's important for the future of where this goes, and that is we saw real specificity in interaction of the pollutants with the transporters. And that means that these can be um, designed, optimized, uh, used. And what I'm proposing is that we essentially do for pollutants what we do for drugs, right? We rationally design drugs so that they'd be readily absorbed. The pharmaceutical companies so that they make sure that you can absorb them. So what we're saying here is that we can do the same thing with pollutants uh, or industrial chemicals to make sure that they don't get absorbed. Um, and then the last point I think that came out of this was that there's huge geographic variation in these kinds of really dirty compounds. And, um, and it really depends on the fish of origin. And that brings up this question of where does our fish come from? How is it labeled? Do we, know, um, do we know, for example, when we buy yellowfin tuna if it's from Louisiana or if it's from Vietnam? So that, I think, raises some, some really key questions about kind of how we're going to um, manage food from, from the sea. Okay, most of the work I showed was done by a postdoc in the lab, lab Tufan uh, Gokermak. Um, going to fancy places like Tonga is not my gig. I just stay in the lab and suffer. Um, my collaborator, Stuart, he goes to fancy places. That's why he's not here. Um, and, so, and then um, we also had a collaborator on the pharmaceutical stuff um, in the School of, of Pharmacy. Uh, Jeffrey Chang and his lab that helped us with the some of the protein work. Okay, so I'll stop there and take your questions. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about the policy implications of this because we aren't very good at regulating chemicals, but one of the ways that we do it is classifying them as something like an endocrine disruptor or a carcinogen. Yeah. But is there a class of chemosensitizing drugs, or is there, or 
pollutants, and is there any way to sort of create a policy pathway towards regulating POPs by classifying them as more hazardous than we have in the past based on this research? Um, so, the, the, I mean, the shortest answer is that no, we don't yet have a class, uh, of a recognized class of chemosensitizers. I think it's a, it's a worthwhile kind of endeavor to consider whether we would we'd want to have that be a regulatory one. Even in the case, I, I might... However, sort of my cynical side might be to say, well, even when we know that they're endocrine disruptors, um, I don't know how effective we've been at actually kind of removing them. And, and I, I think one of the reasons is that these compounds, are some of them are very useful. Perfluorochemicals, I, I would guess that this carpet has some non-stick or non-stain kind of coating because I would probably spill coffee on it within a few seconds of being in here with coffee. So... Um, I mean, that's, that's why we use them. So I, so I think one alternative solution we might be thinking about is can we actually design compounds from the outset to be low persistence? So essentially do kind of rational design of a pollutant. But it's a, it's a good policy question. We don't, we don't yet have that as a category. Here's the mic here. <clears throat> yeah. We're, we're doing that with nanomaterials, trying to get out ahead of the industry to find out which ones are toxic and which ones you might change before they're released at high volume. Um, but my question is, if you have uh, materials that you know block transporters, are there other contaminants within the fish that then are allowed to get into the cell, not be pumped out, that can cause um, problems? So you've sort of got a multiple stressor issue within the fish itself? Yeah, so that's, um, that's a really interesting question. That's the obvious implication of this work, that um, there are things that you're normally eliminating um, that you are not going to be eliminating as well when you... Um, those could be pharmaceuticals that you're taking when you eat the fish. Those could be compounds in the fish or in other parts of your diet. Um, and, and an interesting thought that came to mind to me about this is that um, the dirtier the food you eat, the dirtier you're going to get. So that's, that's sort of... Um, that's a potential implication. Um, we don't know that yet, but that, that seems to be what you would expect from from having these chemosensitizers. And, and they're in all of us, so we, we're, we're definitely taking them in, so they're there. Yeah. A very thought-provoking talk, thank you. Um, I have a couple questions. How persistent are these blocking effects? And then the second is, it strikes me that you, you started off by talking about the challenge with uh, Drugs in terms of cancer, yeah. having a problem of being pumped out. Um, yeah. Is there any sense of utilizing drugs like this to basically be able to stop that pumping out? Oh, so um, yeah, that's a really okay. So there are a couple of um, thoughts there. So using so um, when we showed this at um, NIH, of course, people are very interested in halogenated compounds, brominated compounds, and. Um, as you know, there, there are natural sources of halogenated compounds. Uh, many marine organisms produce brominated compounds as, as sort of secondary defenses. They actually produce a lot of them. They break them open. They make a crystal of them. So there's a, um, a real interest right now in mining marine natural sources for compounds that have these halogenations, which are also kind of the predictors of persistence as inhibitors. And there is one anecdote um, not related to persistent pollutants, but um, about one very well-known drug, thalidomide. Thalidomide was, um, caused these horrific birth defects, and 
Um, it's now in, enjoying a real resurgence in the clinic to treat multiple myeloma. The reason is it doesn't, it's one of the yellow compounds, so it doesn't get recognized at all. It doesn't bind. It doesn't interact. So people are now starting to look at even existing drugs that we already have and see if we have some that fit these criteria of non-interaction or inhibitory potential. In terms of inhibiting transporters, of course, in clinically, my understanding is that the challenge is, um, you know, you're you're talking about um, potential toxic side effects when you start at a dose that's enough to kind of get a cancer drug in. But the alternative, right? The alternative is you die. So, so and and I I mean, um, chemotherapy is in fact, unfortunately, a balance between. Um, giving you enough of the drug to kill the cell and not so much that you actually kill the patient. Amra, really, really interesting. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> my question is about the, maybe I'm using the wrong terminology here, but the persistence in the environment if we were to, let's say we stopped polluting, stopped all forms of chemical production today, how long would it take for these things to sort of get cycled through the environment, through the food chain? Yeah, so um, the POPs were an interesting case study for us because we knew they're persistent at the outset. We know they're really persistent ones. They have these interesting behaviors. A lot of them have been banned. So DDT, 1972, right? Um, that's, that's really old. Um, however, they, they're still used in small amounts. So DDT, there's an exception in the Stockholm Convention that allows countries to use it in the case of malaria control, for instance, so there is still some usage. I think most of the um, DDT that we detect, for example, in fish in California is the DDT that was um, dumped in, on the Palos Verdes shelf by Montrose Company when they were getting rid of the last of their stocks of it. So, so we have some polluted sites. They persist in, you know, they change form. So DDT in the environment is very transient, becomes DDD and DDE very rapidly. But the um, byproducts persist for a very long time. And... Um, it's not just the environmental persistence that's per- perplexing, but to me it's the, it's the fact that as you move up through the food chain, um, the level gets higher and higher and higher, such that in a bird, for example, the level is something like ten or 20,000 times an organism at the very um, bottom of the food chain. Um, that's hard to understand from a diffusion perspective alone. You know, you need some biological mechanisms to make that happen. Um, but they persist for a very long time in the environment, and they bioaccumulate. So we're talking potentially about things that will be around for decades, maybe, maybe longer. Um, perfluorochemicals are incredibly resistant to degradation. So perfluorochemicals are, you know, um, Scotchgard, right? They're every, every hydrogen has been substituted with a fluorine. The carbon-fluorine bond is the most stable bond in nature. So it's, um, it's, it's not, and it's very natural organisms don't produce perfluorochemicals. So en- enzymes don't deal very well with these. Just like they're non-sticky to our eggs, they're non-sticky to the enzymes that should be breaking them down. Hi, Amra. Uh, excellent talk. Thank oh, you. Thanks, Dave. Um, so I, I was curious about how robust the, the results are for the stereoisomers, and, and specifically as you look at the different stereoisomers of these chlorinated compounds and, and congeners as well, uh, and you look across the efflux enzymes of different organisms, uh, could it be that one stereoisomer is going to uh, be have more of an impact with uh, with one enzyme versus uh, another organism or another enzyme? Yeah, that's a, so that's a good question. In um, I just go back really quickly, so I can't I can't answer that too 
sorry, I can't answer that too broadly, but if I go just back to our data, we compared um, mouse and tuna. So they're both vertebrates. I mean, that's a very small slice of, of evolution, but, um, but certainly they're the species we're talking about in terms of movement of pollutant from the ocean into the fish and then from the fish into us. And not only for these isomers, but for a lot of the compounds, they weren't identical, but there was striking similarity, much more than we, we had predicted from the outset. We thought that the interactions might be nonspecific. So you have a generally hydrophobic thing. It's going to stick anywhere on the protein, and you're going to get these kind of random effects. But in fact, they're very specific. The only, the only thing I can wrap my head around that would explain that is a specific kind of binding in the ligand binding pocket, like, like we see here, that there's actually a... Um, a greasy pocket where these things really like to dock. And the shape of that pocket is what governs why you get these differences. Of course, we don't see this for all stereoisomers, but there are other examples. Among the PCBs, for example, among closely related congeners, we get very large differences in IC50s and total inhibitions. And the most reasonable explanation at this point is that that's a binding effect. Hi, thanks. This is really interesting. Um, I had a question about the geographic uh, sort of differences between the Gulf of Mexico and Eastern Atlantic and the other areas around the world. One, one is, do we have a sense of where those are coming from? I, I would have thought that waters around Europe would be similar, perhaps. Um, is that is are, they, are these moving in the water, or are they terrestrial runoff? Yeah. Um. So that's a good question. I mean, you're asking about this. Um, well, I mean, there, there are two ways. One, one caution I should, I should state here is that, you know, our sampling density is incredibly low. And the ocean's a big place, and we're, we're sampling a few fish from each of these sites. Um, just to keep in perspective, and one of the limitations that these analyses are, are expensive. So we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars just to do these, kinds, these few analyses. Um, um, I guess, um, you know, if you sampled with greater density, perhaps you'd find other hotspots of pollution. But we're looking at yellowfin tuna, so our, our thinking is that they're getting this as, um, as things move up through trophic levels to kind of a higher trophic level fish. Um, so there's some mixing or some... Um, normalizing that happens as you move up through the trophic level. So we think, for example, a fish in um, a predatory fish here is going to is going to show a signature of the Palos Verdes contamination, whether you collect it from San Diego or Los Angeles or you know Baja California. You'll see that signature there because as the pollutant moves through the food chain, it tends to um, biomagnify. So um, one possibility is we are actually seeing a real signature that has to do with geography or some kind of contamination. The other is, of course, that um, we just need more sampling density. We would actually see this at higher resolution. If you know how we can fund that, I'd like to talk. Let's do one more. Two more. Okay. Um, let's see. The warning for the women was mostly for mercury, yeah. which you haven't talked about and maybe you don't want to. But um, with mercury, selenium, it seems to offset that a little bit when people have concentrations of selenium. Anything like that with the POPs? Um, I don't know. That's a really that's a really neat question. I don't know if there's some other dietary component that you could take that would offset that. 
Um, since I don't know, I'm going to tell you an unrelated story, but it is interesting. Um, and, and the unrelated story is um, people are starting to look now at the effect of uh, microbes in our gut on our metabolism of these compounds. And mercury, is, um, mercury can be demethylated. You know, it, it ha- uh, the form that's in our body is methylmercury. Um, inorganic mercury is actually excreted much better. And there are microbes, um, presumably in our intestine, that can um, accelerate the rate of um, demethylation or, or uh, demethylation of um, mercury and sort of change its dynamics of excretion. So one, one place I might look if I was starting with that right away is what, what kinds of microbes are there that could be metabolizing POPs. And, of course, there's all these sorts of therapeutic ideas that go with that, like can you manipulate your microbiome in some way that you could I- enhance your elimination of these things. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just don't know how to grow them. I'm just... All right, good. Yeah, one more. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Actually, I just had a question about how to interpret this, because yeah. it's all in proportions. Does this tell us anything about the absolute amounts of these around oh. the world? Yeah, we have the absolute amounts. I'm just not, I'm not showing it here. So, for example, um, the average amount in um, the Gulf of Mexico is about 1.1 micromolar. In, uh, in lipid, so we tend to, th- we tend to prefer um, thinking of these as concentrations rather than amounts per unit mass because they partition into lipid. Um, so it's about 1.1 micromolar and about 60 nanomolar for um, something like Guam or Tonga. And so it's, it's a big difference in absolute amount. And we also have, I mean, we have each of the, indiv- we have the mass for each of the individual congeners, so I'm just not showing that here, but... So- much higher in the U.S. than anywhere else? Is that... um, well, so, uh, in the Gulf of Mexico and North Carolina, that, those were the two highest sites that we... But for, all, for, all, for PCBs, pesticides, PBDEs, those were, those were quite high. Um, so that, that's what we saw. But isn't the size of the pie... <laughs> Yeah, it reflects the ma- the mass, the amount. Yeah. Don't look at the bottom. Oh, the bottom is just a blow up, so you can yeah, so you can see it. The bottom is just a blow up because you otherwise you can't see Guam. Okay, sorry, I didn't. Guam is right there. I was misinterpreting. Okay. Okay. Thanks. All right. Sure. in coastal spaces, and um, it's estimated that 25 to 33 percent of global catch comes sort of is, is, is caught through small-scale fisheries, and that becomes something really different to understand and to manage than thinking about these global sort of U.S.-type fisheries where we're managing a centralized kind of organized fishery. Um, and so, so I study how, how resource use changes Sort of how how livelihoods change and how that affects resource use in these communities as they as they go from being prime, kind of subsistence based to progressing through to kind of wage labor and a cash based economy um, and to kind of illustrate a little bit of of how that might affect it in a subsistence community say you have a hundred households 
Roughly 80% of them maybe are engaged some way in, in fishing throughout their week, but that's often part of a livelihood strategy that also includes fishing, farming, maybe small trade, a number of different things, but at the community scale. And they're usually using um, you know, traditional gear that is limited also in, in the extent, you know, how far out they can fish, how deep the gear is limited. And then as, so for example, in the communities where I'm studying on the coast of, uh, the Pacific coast of Colombia, there's tourism development that's kind of spreading out because we all want to go to beaches, and tourism has seen huge increases with the rise of, sort of middle class, and people want to go to the coast. So tourism is going to keep happening, and this is, so this is spreading along, along the coast, and I think will continue. And so next to each other, you have a community that still has this pattern of subsistence fishing, 80% of households kind of in this, this medium-level resource use as a mixed livelihood strategy. And next door in a community 40 minutes walk away, you have a community that has a tourism industry that has kind of gone up and down over the last couple decades. But um, kind of early estimates are that about 80% of those households are primarily engaged in um, sort of derive their economic livelihood through wage-based uh, labor that relates to the tourism industry. And so... That likely has a lot of important implications for things that are going on at the community and the household level, demographics, socioeconomics, and we can, we can look at what those are. But in terms of resource use and food security, they're no longer catching, uh, I, don't, I don't think, I think they're primarily now having to purchase their food rather than catch it themselves. And so I'm interested in seeing if their, if their diets change as they go from purchasing. Um, I think initially they probably replicate the diet that they had, but then may transition sort of to a more Western developed diet, which has health implications. And also the presence of tourism may affect, um, kind of drive the price of fish up. Because if you're purchasing fish and now there's this demand for local fish from tourists, um, that, may, that may make sort of take the, the price of, of fish out of the range of these, of these usually low-paying jobs that people have in the communities. So uh, through the talks today... Um, I kept, you know, a lot of this was at the global level, and I, I kept trying to think to, to bring it back and, and understand how some of these, um, you know, some of the understanding how this sort of, like for seafood consumers, for example, the, the, the growing middle class of people that are seafood consumers, how that differs from the sort of diffuse, small-scale, rural consumers, and how sort of what, what the implications are of understanding those two user groups as we think about changing seafood supply and resource use. Well, I was under five. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Um, for you, those of you that don't know me, um, I'm Laura Johnson. I'm one of the founders of Salty Girl Seafood, um, along with Nora Eddy, who's also here in the audience. Um, and we're here today just to talk to you a little bit about the business that we have started in the last year. Um, Salty Girl Seafood is a sustainable seafood distribution company that provides better access to sustainable, traceable, and high-quality seafood for restaurants and chefs around the U.S. Um, and we do this by partnering directly with fishermen um, and aquaculture farms as well um, to enable chefs to have um, the freshest and best access to seafood that's shipped directly from them, from, from the fishermen or from the fishing community. Um, and so we do this in a couple different ways. There are two main parts to the business. Um, we have logistics, and to enable that, we are developing a technology platform um, that allows us to systemize our logistics and 
allow that to operate a lot more systematically. And the second portion is marketing and education. And so with all of our seafood deliveries, um, we provide information for our chefs and the restaurants um, that includes traceability information about the farm or the fishermen, um, the location that their seafood was caught or harvested, um, the date that it was harvested, and information about the sustainability. Um, and so we've also been developing some other stuff for different types um, of programs. Um, I brought this one up today, which is something that we'll be um, testing out tonight at one of the um, Green Drakes events at Soho. Um, but what it enables our restaurants to do is um, sell more sustainable seafood in their establishment, which is one of the underlying drivers and one of the missions of our company. Um, and so to give you a little bit of background um, on how we started, um, Nora and I um, came to the Bren School about two and a half years ago, um, and we were bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, um, really looking for in a <laughs> to bring innovation to fisheries and um, the seafood industry. Um, we had both worked um, aboard commercial fishing vessels in Alaska. Um, Nora grew up on the East Coast. We're both seafood lovers, um, and we really wanted to bring that love of seafood and sustainable seafood to everyone that we could find. Um, and so some of you guys may know that there's a really awesome program here at the Bren School called the Eco-Entrepreneurship Program, um, which allows you to create um, a profitable business around solving an environmental problem as well as a customer problem. And so about two years ago when we, we entered into the Bren School for our master's thesis, um, a lot of awareness was coming about on the issues of mislabeling in the seafood industry, overfishing, um, illegal harvest of seafood, all the things you guys have been talking about today. Um, and so we started there and started talking to as many industry experts as we could find, basically anyone that would talk to us. Um, and what we found out is that um, a lot of consumers here in the United States really aren't that comfortable um, buying seafood or making purchases of seafood or even cooking seafood in their own homes. Most of them actually eat seafood when they're at restaurants, which is where we started to focus our efforts. And so after talking with, at this point, hundreds of restaurants, um, Nora's done a ton of that, that research over the last, last two years, um, even talking with 50 restaurants a day still. Um, we keep hearing the same story. My menu and my values for my restaurant are built upon offering sustainable offerings. Um, and sustainability also oftentimes comes down to quality as well. And I want to be able to tell people that sit down at my restaurant the story of, of the food and what you're eating and where it comes from. And almost everyone that we've talked to has, has such an ease with sourcing produce or um, vegetables or fruits and stuff like that, but seafood is an entirely different story. Um, and so that's where we, we started working um, and moved into starting our business full-time um, in June of last year. So we're still, still fairly new and trying to figure out all of the pieces. Um, but working to bring the best seafood to restaurants and to consumers like you guys. Um, so if you guys have any thoughts or advice for us, know a restaurant, know a friend that knows a restaurant, um, or just generally like seafood, feel free to come talk to us afterwards. Thank you. Um, all right, thanks. Yeah, my name's Becky Wright. I'm a graduate student here at UCSB in the Gaines Lab. And generally, my research looks at 
the design and monitoring of conservation interventions. And part of my research looks at integrating equity into conservation interventions uh, for the purpose of uh, getting people to do something as well as for an intrinsic value. And the other part of my research looks at what community features or attributes uh, would lead individuals in the community to buy into um, that behavior change needed to implement a conservation intervention. Uh, My lab mate, Becca Gentry, she was going to be here and give part of this talk with me, but she had to dug out last minute, so I'm going to speak for her. But she researches the ecological implications of uh, marine aquaculture development. And over the years, we've talked about our different work, and we've realized that there is a huge need for research that looks at um, social ecological systems. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to speak for her, but she left me some notes. (laughs) Um, And maybe I'll just find my own words. But specifically, we need to more fully explore aquaculture as a sociological system that has strong implications for coastal communities and the resources they depend on. And as we heard in Steve's talk, aquaculture is the fastest-growing food production sector uh, and will continue to grow and has a promising future for meeting future food needs in a sustainable way. While no one is suggesting that aquaculture will replace wild fisheries, it does signal a change in the way we think about food from the sea and has strong implications for the coastal communities that are transitioning from fishing to aquaculture as the primary source of income. Um, well, what is really unclear right now is what this transition means for the communities. And so to put it into perspective, about 10,000 years ago, people were still hunter-gatherers. And... Um, The first crops were introduced around then, somewhere in what's called the Fertile Crescent, around Iraq, Syria, and Turkey, some form of wheat or barley. Um, And that spread, the agricultural revolution, didn't happen overnight. It was a very slow, gradual process. Um, It took actually about 3,000 years for plant domestication to spread. Um, So, very slow, very gradual. And this domestication of crops had huge implications for the people. Um, People actually settled down, and they actually got shorter. They lived uh, shorter lives. Um, Once livestock was introduced, they were exposed to a lot more germs. And when you cultivate land, you're taking ownership for that land. And that means that You might want to secure your land, defend it from others, or maybe you want someone else's land. So there's increased warfare. Um, Different kinds of tools emerge. There are different forms of art. Uh, Cities eventually emerge, complex societies involving uh, state organizations, monuments, literacy, um, arithmetic, geometry. You get the idea. So now again, we're experiencing another transition in our food that already has and will have huge implications on communities. Um, This shift to aquaculture is happening really, really quickly, faster than any other point in human history. Um, There are likely going to be benefits and costs associated with these ecological changes like Hunter was talking about. 
um, as well as changes in community structures, human health, political implications, etc. And so why do we need to pay attention to this transition? Because unlike the very gradual transitions in the past, this is happening really, really, really quickly, like I said. And like we've seen in communities where it might happen as, you know, maybe before it happened in a thousand years, a hundred years, or over a um, generation. This is happening maybe sometimes within a year. And because we operate in the global economy, we have the opportunity to influence the policy and the socioeconomic consequences of how this rolls out. So if we pay attention to the ecological, but also the social and economic dimensions associated with this rapid development, and influence these policies that encourage sustainable aquaculture, aquaculture can benefit the local communities and provide um, for global food production. And I also think that if we understand these social implications and the benefits associated with them, we might be able to sell them to the community that we could then push forward some of these policies that have been roadblocks before, for, um, for example, here in California. So, Greetings. Uh, my name is Bernard Feynman, and uh, I'm the owner and operator of Santa Barbara Mariculture Company. And exactly four miles to the south of us is an open ocean shellfish farm. And it's actually the only one in all of America, in all the United States. And uh, it's four miles to the south of us. And if there's one thing I'd like to encourage the scientific community to do is actually to tell you that it's possible. You can do it. I, last year, I grew 162,000 pounds of mussels. This town consumed over half of that in Santa Barbara. Uh, the rest of it went to Southern California. And in the process, no marine mammals were harmed. <laughs> No fisherman was upset um, or bothered by it. Uh, no sailboats were sunk. Uh, the ocean floor was not degraded. And uh, in fact, uh, no headlines were made. And so I, I got into this with one sort of hypothesis. Why can't we do this? And uh, I'm happy to report 12 years later, I still haven't found the answer to that. So you can do this. It's possible. We can grow our own seafood in this country. And uh, don't let the difficulties stop you. You know, the only thing that's really stopping you is the person, the person in the mirror. You know, when you look at yourself, you know, and the reasons... Is you know it's possible, and I would just like to encourage the scientific community that to go for it. Thanks. Could you talk to the licensing challenges, or what do you have to do to set up a legal operation to do what you're doing here? Well. It's the people that are doing the licensing, they don't know what they're doing. And so they really have to work it out amongst themselves about how to do it. I, because it's kind of the chicken and the egg, because no one's been able to do it, they really haven't thought about how to do it. But now I've done it, now they've got to think about how to do it. 
So what was it you actually did? <laughs> Growing. What, what kind well, of paper? I, I grew mussels in the ocean, and I'm successful, and I'm petitioning them, petitioning them to say that there's a few. There's uh, the problem is is that there's too many agencies that have to sign off on what I'm doing, and of course, no one talks to each other, um, no one likes to talk to each other. And, uh, and there's no set of rules that everyone can, can agree by. And uh, what I'm posing is that, why don't you make a set of rules? And that's what needs to happen. I just was curious, what are the two agencies that are up against each other? Uh, well, I pay the, uh, the uh, Fish and Game Commission rent. And, there's a, uh, and then the Coastal California Coast Commission doesn't agree with what the Fishing Game Commission allows me to do. And so they've made uh, a certain set of uh, mitigation or rules that would prohibit me from doing what I'm doing at, at a reasonable cost. Because I, I kind of compete with, uh, with muscles from Mexico, muscles from New Zealand, so I have to be competitive. Uh, on a global scale. Um, and so that's kind of the, the crux of the issue. Is like, if you don't let me grow here in the United States, well, that's, that's kind of bad for the seafood consumer because we're just going to import from other countries. And so is that responsible for people to do? Um, so, so that's kind of where they're up. At, well, I'm trying to highlight that they're up against that you know, we should permit seafood, the, the production of seafood in this country, and for it to be competitive with everybody else. Do you renew each year a license? Uh, yeah, so, so that's the thing. The, 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 the Coastal Commission, really, they just want to, they just want to uh, give their permission, and then they don't want to bother it. But it's a, because I'm, an, I'm, in an orga- I'm a farm, I'm a living animal, per se, that basically the permitting, like when I go through the fishing game, I, um, I give a proof-of-use report. When I go um, get a, a health permit from both the FDA, which is the land-based side, and the California Department of Health, which is the ocean side, uh, it's, a, it's a yearly permit. So they basically go through, you know, it, every year is different, every year changes, and um, you need to work with your, your, your permitting agency. And the... The Coastal Commission is not really set up in that manner. And so that poses problems. It was great to have you here. Thank you. Your comments actually touch on two very interesting things that we've alluded to today. One is, you know, the kind of the consumer taste and the sort of seafood that they want to eat. There were earlier talks that said, well, we need to convince people that they don't need to have salmon as their seafood and they should be eating shellfish. But it seems like you've already done that. But the other one is, again, what kind of coastal environment do we want to have? Without knowing how the people on the Coastal Commission are thinking, I can can see that people are going to say, oh, well, I drive from the Central Valley to look at a beautiful unobstructed view of the coast. And we kind of have to convince people that that can include looking at 
shellfish farms as part of the, their beautiful coast. Yeah, yeah. The, what I've been able to do is, in, I mean, this farm has integrated with the coast community. The whale watching boats, they drove right by. The whales go right through. The fishermen fish on the side. It works with the coast community. It works with the environment. It works with the coast community. And that's kind of the chicken and the egg thing. I've been able to do, I've been able to show that it works. All right. Then, then here's a tough one. So how big can it, can it get? So if you, if you ran the, if you were appointed by the governor to be in charge of all permitting for aquaculture, how big could this thing get? And what would the ocean look like 50 years from now after it's all played out? <laughs> that is a tough one. And uh, I, don't, I don't know those answers. I'm just trying to get my 72 acres up and running. And uh, that's been a challenge. It's been, it's, it's hard. It's, after 12 years, it's e- I can say it's pretty easy. I got it down. But getting to getting into those 12 years, it's been really hard. And I always tell people, if I go out and I get hit by a bus tomorrow, like you've lost all that knowledge. And what I really need to do, my weaknesses, is to get other people, other farmers farming. So, you know, if I, if, I, if I go down, it's done. There's no, there's no backup. If the boat goes down, there's the, it's a specialty boat. The boat goes down, there's no backup. So what I need to do is to set up farms up and down the coast so that there's uh, so um, so there's diversity. So like every farm has different, there's little coastal zone, there's little coastal um, microclimates in the ocean. And and j- just for shellfish quality, you know, if you're a farmer, you got a source. If you want to, if you want to p- supply a product throughout the year, you got to pull from a few different sources, a few different places. And so what I would like to see is a few coastal communities set up shellfish farms off their coast and to work together like a co-op and to share equipment um, and to share ideas so that you could... My biggest problem is coming into the market with a consistent, a good, consistent quality product. And I, I need to network with other farmers up and down the coast in order to provide that into the marketplace. And so I don't know what the size would be, but I know there should be a diversity and I know there should be a lot more people than just myself doing this. Yeah, Bernard, thanks so much. I just want to commend you on, um, on taking on that challenge and I think that here we've heard a lot about the there's a lot of work coming out of this university and a lot of work coming out all over the place about the benefits of low trophic level species like we've been talking about and um, you are that wealth of knowledge and I think that the community here bolstering your ability to go and share that knowledge and there's no reason that um, the U.S., but California in particular, shouldn't be this leader for increasing the amount of low trophic level aquaculture that happens in the states. And we hear all these horrible stories about mangrove destruction. You know, we've we've heard it today about um, Americans don't want to be consuming this scary scary stuff, but the demand is there for shellfish, and the interest is there, and we know that it's a good thing to do. So. Um, keep at it, and I hope that somebody gets in your brain and writes all that down, and that you can, you know, disseminate all that information, and that we see some change out there. Sure. 
Bernard. So, um, like listening to Steve's talk earlier, and it, 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 you know, it seems like a no-brainer that this is a really good way to go to meet the the needs of the foods in the future. And um, you've shown that it can work and it can be profitable. And uh, I guess the question is, um, you know, you. I mean, I know you, you work really hard, and maybe that's the reason why, you know, this really hasn't kind of caught on, because it does take people that have that, sort of that initiative to get things going. I'm just kind of curious, we have a lot of scientists here, like, what kinds of questions really um, would help you and would help push, like, your industry forward that remain to be answered, that can be sort of dealt with by people in the scientific community? Well... Yeah, I I got into it. I was sort of a scientist in training, and, and how I got into it was uh, uh, I went to graduate school in the University of Ireland and came back here, fell in love with a girl, and uh, <laughs> didn't want to go back to do my master's thesis in Ireland. And so I asked him, and, and uh, at the time I was working for um, Ecomar, which harvested muscles off the oil platforms and uh and uh, bob meek he wanted to get back into the oyster business and um so he he you know i didn't want to go back and so i i said look i'll grow your oysters for you on this platform and uh and then uh i'll just write my thesis and send back the information to ireland and that worked and uh so i got into it uh doing science and looking at growth and um and uh we didn't really know if it was edible or if people would like the product. And so we actually started selling the oysters to the uh, farmer's market. And, you know, yes, we, the growth was phenomenal. It was some of the best growth out of any oyster industry anywhere in the world. I mean, we have phenomenal growth rates out here. But I'm, now I'm a business person, and I don't have time to do any of the science. So there's so much science to be done and so much to be measured in every aspect of this business that I, don't, I just don't have time to do. So, take your... This will be the last question, and then we need to switch to our other two speakers. So, my question is sort of a follow-on to this. Have you thought of partnering with the scientists to study what's going on under the farm, to study the whale occurrences around the farm, all, all the things that you, issues you raised already that could go, if you have data from your farm, mm -hmm. it could go a long way towards helping ease the way for future farms. Right. So that is the question of the hour. How, do, how does that happen? <laughs> you guys are the scientists. I'm the farmer. How do we get together and make that, and make that happen? I, I, it's still a mystery to me, but that—that's what needs to—that's what needs to happen. Yeah, for sure. You bring the muscles. To <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay, we have Jerry French. Jerry French. My question to Bernard was going to be, tell us about your film and how to find, how to find it. It did? Yeah, it's on a film Oh, not yet. So it's not on YouTube? That's how I learned about Bernard. What's it called? 
called Muscle Man. It's a great film. Done by... Welcome. I'm Jerry French. I'm a dietitian. Um, I'm a chef wannabe and a farmer wannabe, but I'm a dietitian. Um, I prefer to call myself a culinary nutritionist, and I support SOLE, sustainable, organic, local, and ethical food. However, people come to me for many other reasons, so I want to teach them this, but they're at a certain level, and I need to move them forward. Um, but I, I, I'm here because I ask people what they eat and why they eat and where they eat um, and where they shop and so forth. And most people aren't eating fish. Okay, now when I ask my chefs, I teach nutrition for the chefs at City College, they all eat fish. They know how to cook it. So one of the reasons that they don't know how to cook it, okay, um, they don't like it. Um, for the smell, um, they don't like it for the cost. So that's you know, so we have to talk about that. And so my job as a dietitian is to teach them they don't need the quantity of protein that most Americans eat. You don't have to have six ounces of protein at a meal. You can have it like we had at lunch today as tacos. So that makes it more affordable. So it stretches it a little bit more with some beans and so forth. So that helps. But um, some people love to tell me that they're not eating red meat. And then they'll say, I eat chicken and fish. And I say, whoa, chicken and fish? In the same sentence. And so, I, so I'll say to them, um, do you ever hear people taking fish oil? And they say, yeah. I say, they're not taking chicken oil. So, and they get it. They get, I mean, they, all of a sudden they realize there's a difference. And I don't say anything negative about chicken, but I say there's just benefits to fish. So then I start talking to them about why they're not eating more fish. Um, so I run a meetup group. It's the Santa Barbara Food and Farm Adventures, and I take people to learn about their food. And um, I, I'm really a lover of farmers and fishermen as well, um, because I think they're healthcare providers. And um, I usually try to get that point across um, to people. And um, I guess the only other thing I would want to say is for the grad students here, if you need to study people, <laughs> I see people every single day. I mean, I've been a dietitian for 30 years. Sometimes I see 10 people a day, and I get to ask them a lot of questions. So, you know, we can collect some data about what people eat and why they eat and so forth. Um, and it seems to me, in terms of when people say they don't really like fish, um, you know, teaching them how to cook it and season it and so forth. But Julia Child did some wonderful things, getting people to eat fish. And, you know, she changing the names of fish and making it more, you know, appealing. Um, that was really helpful. I think Michael Pollan, who's going to be here um, in April, he's done a lot of wonderful things in this country um, for, uh, for sustainable food and uh, getting people... Uh, to eat different foods. He's pretty a powerful person. He's a good writer. And Dan Barber is a chef in New York that's also a wonderful writer and um, would be a good promoter of aquaculture. People, I, the message that farm-raised fish is, is not 
benef- not healthy is out there. People t- love to tell me that they're not eating farm fish. So we need to get the. I used to say to them, you know, maybe years ago, and there have been some problems like we t- we've heard about them today. But I think the future is aquaculture. So I'll, I'll say, tell people just sort of wait and see. It's 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 coming. You know, it's it's getting healthier than it used to be. So anyway, all I have to say. <laughs> This is probably an unfair question, oh. but what was your reaction to Amro's talk? About the pollutants? Yeah. Oh, um, I, I, um, I'm concerned about pollutants and, um, you know, when that sign about mercury and so forth um, is, is, you know, reality. And um, so I do teach people about the dirty dozen when it comes to produce. I don't talk to them about the filthy 14. Um, you know, because I don't want to be an alarmist, and um, you know, you, you need to do it in a gentle way. And it's better to eat some fish than no fish. You know, there's you know, there's all these different ways you can go about it. But um, it is it is alarming, and especially for you know, pregnant women and for and for ch- small children because they're you know they're just being bombarded. Um, it's a wild world out there, and uh, the food industry is pretty. Interesting. That's a whole nother lecture. <laughs> so. Good. Thanks. Oh, Dan Barber. He's yeah. He's got a book called I think Third Plate. Yeah. More than you ever want to know about the way they raise pigs and um, what they eat and so forth. But it's good. <laughs> Hi, I'm Shirley Hahn, and I'm going to take a more loose interpretation of the lightning talk um, <laughs> genre here. Um, so I'll give a brief background of, um, of who I am. So I received my PhD here at EEMB, um, and right now I am a postdoc at the Center for Nanotechnology and Society, which is actually a social science center. And for the past year and a half, I've really been working on um, Chinese social science issues, um, predominantly looking at how industrial policy actually affects changes um, in science research and uh, primarily looking at um, the impacts on nanotechnology and emerging technology development in China, since China has a very progressive industrial policy. Um, So as many speakers have mentioned uh, in this today, um, a lot, Asia is going to have a huge impact Um, in the future in terms of environmental impact and food security. And I think most of us have heard that China has had several food security issues in the past, exploding watermelons and so forth. Um, And so I am interested to see if Asia predominantly um, and China more specifically will be a focus of this initiative. and how, as there are a lot of research that's already going into it, how you see, how you think that will play out. Um, and secondly, this is more for Chris and the rest of the people who are organizers of this event and moving this event forward. Um, how do you see people like myself or graduate students or st- other stakeholders, um, the other people who have been here at the Lightning Talks, how do you see us being involved in this initiative if we want to be involved? Um, and and I think that's my comment for everyone else. So, yes. 
I'll just make a, a quick reaction and then I'll invite my colleagues to react. And th this is great because this, you're our last lightning speaker, so we can sort of transition into the concluding remarks. Um, let me just say a, a bit about process here. So the structure of this uh, workshop is actually a two-day summit. This is the first day. But there's a half day tomorrow for the, the speakers and a couple of invited people from various UC campuses to get together to talk about sort of designing what a research agenda might look like. Okay. And I think this is, so this will be really it's the, just the very first step in trying to envision how multi-campus uh, collaborations could emerge and what the focus of those collaborations might be. So to answer your first question about is Asia or China likely to be a specific focus of that, you know, honestly, I think it should be, or I don't know if it should be its own module, but it certainly should be a, an important focus. But we'll have to talk about that tomorrow. Um, and the second question about, you know, how, does, how do people who kind of aren't going to be there tomorrow, but either are here or maybe are not even here, uh, how do those people plug into that process? And I'm going to hunt that one to Katie, because that's a harder question that <laughs> we, I think the the big picture idea is we want to be very inclusive and we welcome anybody's participation, but the exact mechanics of how to do that, right. I'm not certain about yet. Uh, so first of all, I want to thank you for bringing up this point. Uh, we're very excited to have such a large uh, group of folks come here today from so many diverse backgrounds and diverse institutions. Uh, so we're really excited to have your involvement today and we hope to have your involvement in the future as this initiative grows. Um, there's been a lot of investment in this initiative from the UC Office of the President, um, both in terms of staff time, in terms of uh, po the political um, clout of this initiative, as well as financial resources that have been invested in this. And we're really excited about uh, really seeing that dedication to this initiative from the UC Office of the President. Uh, this event, in fact, uh, all of the catering today, our audiovisual, the video that we'll be making public um, so that anybody who's not here today is able to enjoy these videos uh, was fully funded by the UC Global Food Initiative from the UC Office of Presidents. We're very, very thankful for that support. Um, and part of the reason that I point that out here is that that also means that I, I do believe that this initiative will be going on into the future. We're looking at definitely uh, multi-year opportunities that are arising here. Um, and so there's many opportunities to be engaged as we move forward. In the immediate, um, if you're not one of the research folks that are going to be here tomorrow, but you've got some ideas coming at it today, you'd really like to see... Uh, the uh, research agenda going in particular directions, stick around for the mixer. Um, we're plying you with food, not just to fill your tummies, but because we want you to talk with us. Um, so please talk to Chris here, uh, talk to the other researchers, the other speakers. All of the folks that we're speaking today are that core group of people that are going to be here tomorrow, coming up with those research concepts moving forward and developing those multi-campus research collaborations. Uh, so give them your ideas. Give them your feedback from today so that they can take that into tomorrow. Um, we will actually, one of the things that I'm very excited about is that UC Officer President has even gone beyond fund, funding just this conference, but they are going to be funding some grants for these multi-campus research collaborations. So we'll be starting new projects coming straight out of this conference. Um, so give us your ideas for those. Also, if you have ideas in the next week, in the next month, contact Chris or Jewel or myself. Give us those ideas and uh, let us know how you'd like to be involved so that we can facilitate that in the future. 
Um, if you're somebody who's local, um, every few months we have coalition meetings of the UC Global Food Initiative. Currently we have about 45 people um, from about 25 different organizations coming together every two to three months to share ideas about how we can really leverage the UC Global Food Initiative. And we have folks both from the campus and from the community coming to those coalition meetings. So if you're interested in that, please let Jewel or I know or Chris know as well. We'd love to have your involvement in those coalition efforts. Uh, moving forward. The, this uh, food, from the fe- uh, food from the Sea Summit is also one of many uh, initiatives and portions of our broader efforts around the UC Global Food Initiative. We're doing a lot around food insecurity, developing farmers markets, uh, working with uh, direct programs around our food pantry on campus and a program called Swipes, which is another program to directly support students who don't have access to food. Um, and so we have a, an also sourcing food locally and particularly how do we support local farmers? And maybe one of these questions should be, how do we support local fishermen to be able to do work with the universities, and particularly small-scale fishermen or small-scale farmers sometimes have difficulty with the heavy paperwork, insurance requirements, uh, difficult RFP processes of a university. And so we're working on developing in, uh, ways to make it easier for small-scale uh, farmers to work more closely with our dining commons, for instance, and with our university center, um, who's providing the catering today. Um, So please uh, let us know if you're interested in any of those efforts or if you think there's something else we should be doing that we're not doing. Come talk to us again and, and share your ideas. We'd love to have you involved. Um, I also uh, do want to allow it to just go back out to the audience to say if you have an idea for how you'd like to be involved that we haven't mentioned or there's a, a, an avenue you'd like to see opened up, let us know um, and we can try and see what we can do about that. Okay, let me just conclude with, with uh, a few final, final comments, and then I think Lee has something to say as well. Um, <clears throat> so one of the things we're going to do tomorrow is break out into small working groups, some small number of them, maybe three or four of these things. And I would be very interested to hear from the people that are not planning to be there tomorrow if you think we definitely ought to have a, a working group on aquaculture or a working group on health effects of pollutants in, in fisheries or fisheries management working group. So if you have specific ideas about what those you know, focal areas ought to be, and frankly, those are likely to be the focal areas that end, end up getting funded from the, the funds that Katie mentioned a minute ago. If you have ideas about those things, we'd love to hear about them over cocktails or now or at any, at any point in time. So I think I will conclude my comments by just really thanking everybody here, especially the speakers, but also the audience members for your great participation today. So thank you very much. And I'm told Lee has a, a final comment as well. I actually wanted to direct it to the last lightning topic speaker because it took a lot of courage to get up there and face a room of friends and strangers uh, and there wasn't enough time for you to get any feedback and as someone who's done a lot of consulting in China and a lot of civic and policy work in California and the western states I would like to encourage you and your associates very strongly because one thing is probably challenging for you when when you go back and forth is 
the extent of involvement of volunteers and nonprofit and non-governmental organizations shaping community and state and national policy in the United States because it doesn't have a direct analog in China. Uh, so when you're here, the opportunity for you and your friends to get involved and move the ball forward in any of the areas that Chris or Katie uh, we're talking about, or any of the things you see in California are very high. On the other hand, if if you read the writings uh, of Teddy Roosevelt, who was a seminal figure a little over 100 years ago uh, in, in the pure food and creating the Food and Drug Administration and the modern form of national forests and national parks and greater equity uh, for ethnic minorities, in this case Native Americans, you read in his writings and in his memoirs that it was deep conversations that he had at the university and with people who were very passionate and expert about different areas of land or different ways of viewing land and people that really affected his thinking. And as he moved up to be governor of New York and then vice president and president of the United States, those conversations from people like you and your colleagues when you're in China, uh, if it's in a positive tone, you never know when that idea or where to get more information will find its way to the senior leadership because they, they know about the pollution into the food stream. They know about the, the air and water issues, uh, and they're looking for ways, uh, as Chris Costello is talking about, for aquaculture and mariculture where you can find a more efficient path that's profitable for people and for the economy but might be a healthier way of going forward. And you can never tell when a positively couched suggestion when you're in China will work its way up and you'll get a phone call from someone saying, I'd really like to find out more. Or is there a conference coming up at the University of California uh, on food from the sea or, or any of these things that we should send some representative from China to sit in and listen to? And so I think you have opportunities no matter which side of the Pacific you're on. And the, the opportunity for direct input and involvement in California and the United States is ceiling unlimited. And I think China is slowly but steadily moving in that direction, too. So I want to thank you for stepping up and, and talking about it. And I would like to encourage you from what you've seen in here today to be inspired to move forward on either side of the Pacific. Because you're, you're, you're the future solution, you know, for, for these kind of issues. Can I just say one? I, I, it's not me, it's Steve Carpenter. So I've been tweeting all day about this meeting, and there have been about 40 retweets of what I've sent out. Steve Carpenter just re, retweeted um, a lecture that somebody gave at uh, Hampshire College last week, and the title is To Make Hope Possible Rather Than Despair Convincing. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.